0: I have in desperate need of these. Thank you. Wow. Very good. Look at Dorothy's loaded. Are you serious? (laughs) Pull that side of fuel. Pull that side. It's a Yeti cooler. Wait a minute. I can do this. (laughs) oh it's got the name on it no one can ever take it that is awesome thank you so much the handle beside the Okay. Oh the cross. This the crossroads cross. Love your crossroads family. All right. Thank you so much. That is an awesome gift. That is outstanding. Huh? Oh, the baked potatoes? Hey, all I got well I did have it, the Mountain Dew. The that Mountain Dew. Oh, whew. yeah, I almost got worried someone took my diet too already. All right, well, thank you. That is wonderful. That is certainly a surprise, and thank you so much for all the goodness you give to us. I mean, you're good to us all the time, but you especially pour out your love during October, and we surely appreciate it. I mean, it's the best church family we've ever had, and we're so blessed to be part of Crossroads Baptist Church. So thank you so much from the bottom of our heart. And Sheila, you got a lot of eating you got to do. All right, well, today we're going to turn to the book of Matthew, all right? And as you turn to the book of Matthew, I'm going to ask you a question. The question is, who is your favorite superhero? Just begin to think about it a little bit and think about who it might be. You might not even have a favorite superhero. What was that? What did she say? (laughs) Who? Oh, I didn't hear it. The good thing about that is when I begin to get a little older, I turn 60 next year, my hearing's beginning to fade a little bit. I don't always hear it anyway. A little bit. Hearing's fading a little bit. Right, Jesse? A little bit. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's right, yeah. I feel young. Yeah, all right. But today we're in Matthew, and we're talking about superheroes. We're going to recognize that the disciples may have had a couple of superheroes. We'll talk about that in a little while as we get into the text and begin to further explain. But I was thinking about superheroes last week, and I don't know if I really have a so-called superhero, at least not like what we see on the big screen, because it seems that you can't turn on a TV or go to the movie theater without meeting or seeing or watching a superhero. Because it seems the uh, people in Hollywood realize that there's an incredible fascination that has surfaced with superheroes. So, looking at some things last week, I began to recognize the newest superhero, which I knew absolutely nothing about, never even heard of him before, is Black Adam. So, Black Adam debuted last week at theaters on last Friday. And I know nothing about this dude, this movie. I never even heard of it before. I didn't read a lot of comics books as a kid, but I've never heard of a superhero, Black Adam. So, I turn to the proper source when you really want to know some solid information. You turn to Google. Right. And here's what Google said about the movie and about Black Adam. It said, In ancient conduct, I guess that's how you pronounce it, Teth Adam was bestowed the almighty powers of the gods. That's a little g. After using their powers for vengeance, he was imprisoned, becoming Black Adam. Nearly 5,000 years have passed, and Black Adam has gone from man to myth to legend. Now free, his unique form of justice, born out of rage, is challenged by modern-day heroes who form the Justice Society. I still don't know what that means. But I normally see, if I hear of a superhero movie, it seems to be there's this villain who is in the movie, and is overtaken, then, his evil by the hero, the superhero that emerges, like Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, whoever. I don't know if that happens to this movie or not. But regardless, it's, just, it's a constant theme. I mean, besides this movie now debuting and getting to theaters last Friday, there's more to come yet this year. So let me tell you, in case you're wondering, on the edge of anticipation, on November 11th is the next Black Panther movie. All right. What's it called? Yeah, Wakanda Forever. I have no idea what that means. But in case you missed that one and you're looking for your next superhero, just in time for Christmas on December 21st is Shazam, Fury of the Gods, with a capital G, interestingly. That it that was just before Christmas on December 21st. Now, that's not the end of it. There's much more. In 2023, listen. In January 13th, the debut of Craven the Hunter. On February 17th, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Fe- March 17th, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. May 5th, Guardians of the Galaxy. June 2nd, Spider-Man <laughs> Across the Spider-Verse. June 23rd, The Flash. That's just the first six months of 2023, and there's probably more to come. It's remarkable that people have such a fascination. You've even heard some of it here that people get excited about these superhero movies. Now, by the way, in case you're wondering, I did a little research further, i this is drawing out the introduction a little bit longer, but we're making a point. The greatest, uh, the most money-making superhero movie ever the Avengers, Infinity Wars two point eight billion dollars. Second, again, Avengers, No Way Home, two point or two million, two billion dollars. And finally, Spider-Man to round out three, No Way Home. You know how much it made? One point nine billion. That's all. I mean, there's an incredible fascination with superheroes. So I was wondering about this last week, thinking about it and thinking why why is there such a fascination of the DC Marvel comic mo- movies? Why are they becoming so popular among people? And begin to think it, I mean, it's the answer could simply be because we have an evil dark society. And and we like for some goodness to just happen, and we all of a sudden see want to see the evil overcome by the good people, the superhuman people, and maybe we just flock to see that. I mean, we, we like people fighting for our good against the enormous superhuman odds that are sometimes against us. And maybe that's why we like them. Or maybe it's just flat-out entertaining. Them. But whatever the case, in the account that we're going to read today in Matthew chapter 17, typically called the Transfiguration, we're going to find there's three disciples in particular who go with Jesus, and they see they see some of their Old Testament heroes. They see Elijah, and they see Moses. Now, I'll expand upon what that means a little bit later, but let's stand this warning as we do to be able to honor the reading of the word. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 17. It's called the Transfiguration. You've probably heard the story before or maybe read it for yourself, but here's what the first 13 verses say in the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew. Verse 1, And after six days, If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Oh, Father, Lord, we're so thankful to come together here this morning, Lord. And we come together today, Lord, we ask that the text that we read today, this account, will begin to speak to us in our time of modern day. Lord, we recognize it have we written many years ago, but we still see how the Bible, God's word, speaks to each one of us today and is certainly applicable to our lives as we live them. So today, Lord, we invite the Spirit to lead and to guide and direct us. Let this message, Lord, that we hear today not be words from me, but the words you want us to hear today, Lord, and see how it applies directly to the lives that we live. So then, Lord, let's be thankful for what we shall learn here today and what we shall apply. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, before we begin to apply the text, we must first understand that Jesus, who's also the feature in this particular text that takes his three disciples to the mountain with the transfiguration, we must first understand that he often traveled throughout the Judean countryside at really a very rigorous pace. I mean, he was on a mission. Jesus truly was on a mission And so he traveled from village to village, teaching about his heavenly father and preaching about the kingdom. And along the many places that he often traveled, he often performed signs and wonders, which would often then attract many people to come and seek him. I mean, we must remember Jesus did not perform the signs and wonders for merely himself, not for himself at all, but to draw attention to the father. So as then the Bible clearly records and tells us, that Jesus performed many signs and wonders. In fact, John, in chapter 20, verse 30, says there's even many more than we could possibly write and speak. But even though he performed all the signs and wonders, and all the miracles that people went to see, went to him to see, we must also remember that in several occasions written throughout the Scripture, particularly the Gospels, he would often retreat from the people, go away by himself and some solitude and some quietness to maybe recharge and maybe just simply pray. I mean, sometimes he was alone in these occasions of these retreats, and sometimes he took with him all or some of his disciples, which is the case here in Matthew 17. You go back to the text, you begin to look and see that, yes, he seems to be retreating from the crowd. After six days, he's going to be able to be recharged, and it takes with him three of the disciples. Not all 12, but only three. And they tell us specifically the three that he went, Peter, James, and John. So as the text tells us in the very beginning of the 17th chapter that Jesus is going to maybe recharge or to retreat and to pray, whatever the situation is, and takes with him only three disciples, my mind begins to spin and wonder, why only these three? Why Peter, James, and John? I mean, why at this moment? when Jesus hiked upon an isolated mountain in the region of Nazareth, is he taking with him only three of the disciples? And we don't really know the answer, but it's possible that the answer could be quite as simple as the fact he is taking with him his three most trusted companions, his inner circle, if you will. Now let me quickly admit and add here further that does not diminish the role of the other nine disciples. I mean, he had 12, he's taken the S3, Peter, James, and John, with him on this particular occasion. But that does not diminish the role and the purpose of the other nine. Because every man recognized, every man was chosen by Jesus. And every man was very instrumental and integral in the establishment of the church and spreading the good news. But yet, we can't but help observe and maybe ponder and ask why. It's only three, and Peter and James and John. And we begin to ponder that, in my mind, it led to our first little sermon application, which is this, that we even, like Jesus, perhaps like he's doing, but surround ourselves with trusted, loyal, God-fearing companions and friends. I now, mean, I know it seems very simple to the question we're asking about why he took only three. Why just Peter, James, and John? And we're never really going to know maybe specifically the answer to the question. But it's possible. It's possible he took only the three because it's who he valued the most. Now, I say it with a bit of caution, not wanting to add any kind of speculation to the text. But if it happens to be the case, then note that he took his inner circle. And that brings up a point for us. Then in all of our lives as we live them, we also need an inner circle. Think about, for the moment, all the friends you have in life. Now, it's likely that the amount of friends you have is dependent upon certain little things like your age or where you've lived or your occupation or maybe even your education. For example, I've lived in four states. I was born and raised in Indiana. I moved away to Missouri later transferred to Mississippi, then to Texas, and then landed back in the great state of Indiana. So I've lived in four, started here, and came back. But in all those travels and all those times, I've learned and gained a lot of friends. Even further, not only did I live in four states, I've had three different universities in which I was part of to be able to also gain some friends. When I graduated high school, I went immediately to Purdue University. That didn't work out. So I transferred to Indiana University. I was at Indiana University for several years, got my bachelor's degree. Later in life, went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. So I was three different educational institutions. And I may have gained a lot of friends at those institutions as well. Then, as I began to work, I traveled along in the chicken business. And I met many different people. Vendors, employees, and salesmen who also then became my friends. But maybe you can see the pattern then. That what we have as friends depends on certain things like where you've lived, how long you've lived there, your occupation, your education, and so forth. All those factors are altogether establishing how many friends you may have. But here's the thing. Who do you call on of all the friends you may have gained in life? Who do you call on when you're really in need of something? For me, as the friends I had in high school, no. Unfortunately, I've lost contact with most of those friends. Even though I've moved back to Indiana, even though I've seen some of them last night at the fundraiser we have at the middle school in Princeton, I don't even recognize most of them. Never been to a, a high school a reunion in over 40 years, and so I've lost contact with most of them. So, no. They're not the friends I call on. If I really need something, it's not them. So maybe I call for my college friends I made over the years. But regrettably, I've lost contact with most of those folks as well. It's been several years since I've been in school or college. So maybe it's the workplace. I mean, I worked in the chicken business for 25-plus years, so maybe it's those people who I call if I really need something, really need to make contact with somebody to help me through a crisis, do I call upon them? Well, I keep in contact with some of those folks. And sometimes we do make some, sometimes we make contact with each other to help us through situations, but it's really not them as well. If I boil it down to who I may call, if we're in a certain situation, if we're in a pinch, if we're in a crisis, I could actually narrow it down to three people or less. And maybe you're the same way. Of all the people you may meet in a lifetime, those you may befriend. there's actually probably a very small group of people you trust enough to confide in and call for help. In essence, it's your inner circle. You may have exactly the same situation in your life as it is in mine. When you want to share the most intimate secrets of your heart, you don't shout it out to everybody. You actually begin to find your most trusted, loyal friends Confide in them and let them help you through a situation. It's your inner circle. Now as you think about that, think of this too. Sadly, Facebook has absolutely ruined friendships today. Social media has made face-to-face friendships a thing of the past. It's possible to have hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of friends on social media. But never have any in-person face-to-face contact. For example, Micah doesn't have a Facebook account. He's too young. But he's always online playing games. And when you're playing Xbox and other games, you can meet people on other states, other continents across the world. And he has done so. He was telling most recently about a friend of his he met in California. He'd been a friend for several years. Never met him. Never met him face-to-face. Only contact was through the game. His name is Jaden. And they communicate quite often. And maybe it's a low-trusted friend that Micah has. But it's not the way that we as adults actually establish uh, friendships. We don't maybe make the friendships like modern kids do today that we did years ago. But that's how friends are made today, which is remarkable. But it goes back still, the question still exists. About however you make friends, the question still exists. Who do you call? When you're in a crisis, when you're in a time of needing someone truly to help you, who do you go to? Who do you call upon? I mean, everyone needs an inner circle to friends who are loyal to you or or steadfastly by you, no matter what the case, to get you through a situation. And perhaps in the text, as we begin to look at it and see that Jesus picks only three, Peter, James, and John, maybe that's his inner circle. Now, admittedly, that's not the main point of the text. But we need to acknowledge that we also, in our lives, need loyal, trusted companions and friends, those who we can count on each and every day to accept us as we are and to encourage us through another difficult day. Think of this. Even Job, with all the things that happened to Job, even he had three friends that came to his rescue. Now, as you read through Job, it might be debatable whether he actually called them friends or not, but he had three people when began to, everything happened to Job, lost everything in his life except for his wife. Three men came and sat with him silent for seven days and was just with him during that time. We need loyal, trusted companions and friends. Of course, saying that we must also recognize this. There's no friend in life like Jesus. Jesus is absolutely, positively our best friend for life. The friend who laid down his life for you. That is Jesus. We need to surely make sure he is one of our friends. But having said that, let's go back to the text and see it again in chapter 17, verse 1. Yeah, Jesus met three, had three men, Peter, James, and John, and look, he led them, on a high mountain by themselves, as it tells us the end of the first verse in chapter 17. Now imagine having been to Israel, as Shield and I went through many years ago, that this may have been a very careful maneuver around some rocks and some things that may have been on terrain. Sort of like whenever we go to the Smoky Mountains and like to go on hikes, we'll have to travel over different types of terrain, and it may have been something very similar, but yet very different. Because at this particular moment, in which Peter, James, and John accompanied Jesus upon the mountain, they reached finally the resting place. But then it changed because they are about to have the most incredible adventure of their lives. As they reach the place in which Jesus stops, they will experience, they will witness what is commonly known as the transfiguration. Look at verse 2. As they reach the high mountain and stop, he—that's Jesus. Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And then suddenly, there appeared Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. I mean, observe that according to the text, Jesus was transformed, transfigured somehow, some way before the men. His face was as bright as a, shun, as a sun, as the sun his clothing became completely white, as if maybe he wasn't wearing white when he went. Luke reports it somewhat differently, but similar. He says the appearance of Jesus, his face, changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of light. So in other words, Jesus no longer looks like a normal human being. I mean, he's fully God and fully man, but he's just as much of a man... That are a woman that we are in front of each other now. He looks normal in a sense. But in this particular moment, when they go on the mountain, he is somehow miraculously, supernaturally changed and transformed. It's something they've never seen before. He's shining very brightly, he is dressed in white, it's glowing, it's divine glory, if you will, that are watching the scene. But in the midst of all that happening as that itself would be amazing it's not the end because now also suddenly they see Moses and Elijah and not just Moses and Elijah but talking with Jesus which is completely amazing and incredible. Now as you hear that and we begin to maybe try to picture that in our mind we have to maybe call a time out because we we have to understand the significance of why it's Moses and Elijah. Maybe you've wondered before, why is it these two men? Why Moses and Elijah, who suddenly appeared with Jesus and are now the disciples' bewilderment of everything that happened? So it's important to the story to understand why Moses and Elijah. So you have to know that Moses and Elijah were absolutely honored, revered by the Jews of that particular day. They looked upon these two men certainly as heroes. They were central figures, spiritual leaders from the days gone by for Israel and its history. I mean, plenty is written throughout the Old Testament of each man's notable achievements. How they single-handedly saved the nation at various times from grave danger, whether it be pagan god worship or if any kind of political concern, they would step up to the occasion. They allowed God to use them for his glory. I mean, to put the impact that Moses and Elijah had on Israelite history is, might be looking at our, our country and saying, to be like, all of a sudden, if we were someplace, maybe here at church, and all of a sudden there appeared to be George Washington, Billy Graham, and Martin Luther King, who all had great influence on our nation. I mean, they may not be your heroes in a sense, but it's people who all of a sudden changed the direction of our country who are now appearing in front of us. That's what's happening with the disciples, Peter, James, and John, as they're looking at Jesus and seeing and talking with Moses and Elijah. It's like the most notable people coming alive right in front of you, in front of them at the right moment that changed the course of history. So, yes. The disciples, Peter, James, and John, are completely mesmerized when they open their eyes and see not only Jesus transformed as he is, but now talking and conversing with Moses and Elijah. They're heroes. Note in the text we're only left to presume that the three men are so mesmerized or so perplexed that they're left speechless. I mean, it's probably what I'd have been. I'd probably be completely speechless. But as they're speechless, terrified, mesmerized, perplexed, all the things happening, just taking it all in, notice as maybe they couldn't speak because they're watching it all, one person always steps up, and it's the person we should admire, Peter. Look in verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, as all this happened, he said, Lord, it is good that we are here. Duh. I mean, it's a it's a changing moment for everybody. It's good that we are here. He said, if you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I mean, I, I love Peter anyway. I mean, and Peter essentially here just, just takes an opportunity to speak up like he often does. When no one else will say anything, Peter seems to always want to speak. But here he just speaks up. And it's like he's so mesmerized, he's so, and on all of everything happening, he just does not want the moment to end. He wants to camp out here. He said, it's good that we're here. I'm thinking, dude, really? It's great that you're here. We all want to want to release that moment. It's like he does not want that moment to end. Now notice why the English Standard Version that we read from uses and utilizes the word tense. That Peter says he wants to prepare is better word than other translations. Because tense, honestly, is misleading and not really the best word choice for what Peter is offering here. Basically, what Peter is wanting to do is build pillars or monuments. One translation words Peter's request as building shelters as memorials. And, and I would say, why not? Because, I mean, this is a momentous occasion. And Peter wants to mark the moment when he stands before his superheroes. For him, it truly is a life-changing moment. And if we've been there, it had been the same for us. We would want to have some significance is happening. We want to mark it forever as a life-changing moment. But before Peter could even think about erecting something to memorialize the time, they hear a voice, verse 5. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and then a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then after the disciples heard the voice, what's the reaction? They immediately fell on their face and were terrified. They note that while Peter was thinking about marking the moment in history, God has something bigger planned, something bigger happening. And all of a sudden, he broke the silence, and he spoke. And what God spoke should have been a rude awakening to not only those disciples who were gathered there, taking in the moment, but really for all of us. I mean, look again at what he said. He said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What then is it? that should be the root awakening for the disciples and maybe for us, or maybe worded differently. What is the point now of this pivotal time of the transfiguration with God speaking out at this moment? I mean, they're there to honor the heroes. They see them. What is the point of God speaking those words? And here's what it is. He's saying this. He wants us to recognize that Jesus is the true hero. In our life and the hope of our future, Jesus is the true hero of our life and the hope of our future. Remember, we made special emphasis upon how Moses and Elijah were revered and honored more than any other ordinary person, more than men. They were superheroes to the Jewish nation. Similar, if you will, to the fascination that we seem to be having in our culture in our time of having superheroes on the big screen overcoming evil in the villains. I mean, they come larger than life. They come out of the pages of comic book larger than life on the big screen. I can only think about the countless hours that sometimes people watch the movies or read the comic books and just idolizing a superhero. I don't know how much time is consumed but that, but it has to be considerable. Or maybe you're saying, look, I'm, I hear you, but I'm not into the comic book thing. I'm not into the superhero overcoming the villain type of thing. I, I mean, that, that's maybe for somebody else, but it's not for me. Uh, okay, well, maybe you're not into the superhero movies. I'm not particularly either. I mean, if I'm watching TV, I'd rather be watching racing any day than the superhero movie or anything else. I'm just not into that. Maybe you've not spent the first dime on a superhero movie. I can't say I have either. But if that's the case, then think about the question still. Who is your hero? Because it seems to everybody, it seems to everyone, that we have a hero. Now, maybe you're not getting into the Marvel fascination. Maybe you're not into Flash or, you know, the Spider-Man, Batman, Superman. Maybe you're not in that sort of thing. And that's fine. That's good. But recognize uh, all of us seem to have someone who can recognize as a hero. Now, it might not be one of those, but it could be something like a sports figure. Hopefully, hopefully nobody has Tom Brady as a superhero. I see some pointing going along, and I'm hoping that's not the case. But it may be somebody like it, a well-known sports person, whether it be football, basketball, whatever. I mean, for Kayla, she her hero would be Robert Ballou. And she makes that known quite often, in fact. So maybe you have someone who is in the public who is your, your hero. Or, or maybe it's not anything to do with sports. Maybe it's your favorite actor or your favorite singer. And, and maybe that is your hero, in a sense. But I'm just trying to point to the fact that we all seem to have someone who idolize or to honor and to almost make them our heroes. And so the overarching point then is that there's really only one hero. And his name is Jesus. He is our hero. He took our place on the cross. He died for you. He died for me. He died for all of mankind. So yes, Jesus is our hero, amen? Jesus is our hero. If not, you should make him your hero. Now as the story continues, we left off with the three men were afraid. And on their face. But notice then in verse 7. Jesus came and touched them. And I often think about Jesus touching with that sign, call, you know, soft, kind, gentle touch. He often does. And he's just simply, rise and have no fear. And then notice in verse 8 that when they've lifted up their eyes and he's touched them, they saw no one but Jesus. It's like the moment is over. As quick as it happened, it's over. So then in verse 9, they were coming down the mountain. Suddenly Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That had to have the disciples. I mean, he picked three men to go with him. We talked about how that may be his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. As they come down the mountain, he says, look, don't tell anybody about this. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? This is going to be the greatest moment of my life. I've got to shout this to somebody. He says, no, no, don't tell anybody until I've been raised from the dead. And it has to leave them thinking, why, why, why? But look what they ask. They don't really ask why so much as they ask. Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So he answered them, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Well, then it must have clicked. Because the verse 13 says, Then the disciples understood. He's speaking to them at John the Baptist. There's probably other things you may wonder about the count of the transfiguration. We don't have time to maybe answer them all. But recognize this is a great, wonderful story. The transfiguration. First 13 verses of chapter 17, the book of Matthew. A great, wonderful story. Probably heard it before. But let's end with maybe what that means to us. What can we take? What can we glean in our lives from the Transfiguration? So there's three things I want to share with you. The first is this. The Transfiguration was, yes, a vision, but it's also a brief glimpse of the true glory of the King, Jesus. Note that there will all be a day. There'll be a day for every every one of us where we'll see the wonderful face of Jesus and the radiance of his glory. Maybe those disciples caught a glimpse of what it will be like when we get to see Jesus face-to-face and whatever wonderful moment that will be. I recognize over the years there's something that happens with us as humans. When we live busy lives, and we begin living busy lives, we so often forget about how we should revere and honor and recognize Jesus as being our hero. We get caught up in the day-to-day functioning of life and all of a sudden, we forget about Jesus. We don't want to forget about Jesus, no. But it's just part of our lives. We get so incredibly busy. At times, we just tend to forget about his awesomeness and his love and, and, and how great he is. But the transfiguration and the story then points us back to the truth for disciples, for everyone, that we need to all pay attention to them, maybe a little bit more, to the one that matters the most. The one that matters the most is God's one and only son. In which, as verse 5 says, he is well pleased. He is our friend. He is a friend who, like John 15 13 says, is willing to lay down his life for you and for me, for all of mankind. So yes, we should pay a little more attention to the one that truly matters. Make some daily time to recognize it's Jesus. Look, If we can check our Facebook status, if we can play a video game, if we can actually do anything and idolize any kind of person who we should not be idolizing, then surely we can make time to recognize Jesus in his glory, in his awesomeness, and honor him at some point during the day. He is God's son to whom he is well pleased, and we should take the time each day to recognize his awesomeness his beauty, and his radiance, which one day we shall see. A second noteworthy item to take into account, the transfiguration affirmed Jesus as the Son of God and his complete authority. We've mentioned how it was Moses and Elijah appearing at the moment, two of the greatest prophets in Old Testament history. Moses represents the law, or the old covenant. He's the author, the writer of the Torah, of the law, the Pentateuch. Elijah presents the prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah. Together, at this moment, the two of them confirm Jesus' messianic mission, which is this, to fulfill God's law and the words of God's prophets. He says, this is my son. And he says, this is my son to which I am well pleased. At that point, he made it clear that Jesus has full authority over this earth. He is God's one and only Son. He has full authority. And then third and finally, a Transfiguration revealed that John the Baptist was, as we know, indeed, the forerunner of Christ. Remarkably, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you're going to meet Jews. You're going to meet people in the streets, perhaps people who even your tour guide, that will still be waiting for the literally coming an appearance of Elijah to introduce the Messiah. They'll likely tell you they do not want to hear your story of Jesus. They'll show you all the signs of Israel. They'll show you all the signs of Jerusalem. It will be great in actually telling you all the history pertaining to it, everything you'll see. But they do not want to hear your story of Jesus. Why? Because they're still awaiting the Messiah to come. In simple words, they've missed it. They've simply missed it. And it's sad. Because here it clearly tells us that John the Baptist was the coming of Elijah, who fulfilled the role of Elijah for the introduction of the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. Jesus clearly tells that in verse 12 of the text. So I hope that none of us have ever missed it. Hope that all of us have always recognized that, yes, Elijah was come in the form of John the Baptist, who introduced the way then for our Messiah. Our Savior, His name is Jesus. I mean, one of the most popular verses of all time is John three sixteen, and yes, it is a great verse. But we shouldn't always get hung up on just John three sixteen, because all the verses that follow after it are just as important and just as instrumental. So listen for a moment, John three sixteen through verse twenty one. For again, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal, everlasting life. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed the name of the only Son of God. Then listen to this. Verse 19. I not think it's left out. This is the judgment, the light. Who's the light? Jesus. Jesus is coming to the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Simply said this, Jesus is the light. We know this. He is the hero in our world of darkness. We live in a world of evil. You see it all the time. You may not get to see it in person all the time, but if not, you see it on the news or hear about it on the radio. We live, unfortunately, in the evil world, a world of darkness. But in the world of darkness that we're living in, there is one Hebrew who has conquered it all. And his name is Jesus. He was the light introduced into the world. So what that tells us is we don't have to live in darkness any longer. We don't actually have to try to go out and find a superhero. He is always with us. All we need to do is accept the light to accept Jesus. Just accept him for who he is. Accept him for simply being the son of God who made the sacrifice for you and for me and for everyone. He then, and only he, is any hero we should ever have is one name. And his name of our hero is Jesus, Father.